We are glad to be together with you as we uh, come before the Lord and come together uh, in our study through the book of Romans. We are calling this study Not Ashamed. It's uh, based on Paul's statement in the first chapter of Romans that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And um, our hope, our prayer, our desire for you uh, as well as for us, is that your life would be about declaring the greatness of God, this God who saves and, and changes men and women, teenagers, uh, by transforming their lives. And we do that by loving and reaching people and making disciples of Jesus. Kaioki, we call that declaring, demonstrating, and making disciples. And so it is... Uh, it is a humbling but challenging task, and it's great to have you a part of this aspect of it um, during our online service. So if you uh, are ready, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. We're going to uh, cover as much as we can. Uh, I'm going to guess probably the first 12 or 13 verses. So I invite you to, uh, to open your Bibles. We'll start in verse 1, and we will, let's read through verse 13, okay? Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, we had not been, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, a little bit of a setting. Paul is dealing in this part of Romans over the course of the last couple of chapters through chapter 7. <coughs> He's looking at the fruits of being in Christ. His primary, he begins with, 
what does it mean to be justified by Christ, to be declared not guilty, to be given by God the righteousness of Christ, even though we don't, we're not deserving, we are certainly not righteous. When we in faith trust Christ alone, we are declared no longer guilty, and he applies to our account, we've, we've used that phrase, the righteousness of his precious son. So what happens when that happens? Well, in chapter 5, he discusses the fact that we have peace with God. Uh, then in chapter 6, he looks at sanctification, what it means to be uh, in the process of being made holy. In chapter 7, we'll look today and we'll look next time at the freedom that is ours in Christ. Sadly, though, quite often, um, even as believers, we don't live in that freedom. So think about it this way. Um, you do not know Christ. You are lost in the deepest part of your soul. You are in despair. You are unrighteous. You are at war with God. And then, almost like a miracle, your, your spiritual eyes are opened and you desire Jesus as your Savior. You, you seek to live for Him. You trust Him in faith as your Savior. You surrender your way to His way. And, you, and as you trust Him, in your heart, in your mind, whatever that means and wherever he leads, you begin to follow. And for the first time in your life, you have peace with God. Now, it's not that you are aware of being at war with God up to this point, but all of a sudden, you have this amazing peace because you are at peace with, with God. And as that happens you find that your wants and your desires begin to change. Um, in other words, the slow process of, he, of, of the Lord making you different than the way you were, conforming you to the image of Christ, sanctification, or you are being made Holy. The word holy literally means to be set apart, to be different. And that's what you find happening um, within yourself through the Holy Spirit. Well, now you realize that there is still a battle going on within you. And you're not sure why. You're not sure if... Christ lives in you. You are at peace with God. You, you have the Holy Spirit in you that's making you and conforming you to, the, to, to uh, Christ-likeness and godliness, holiness. Uh, why is it happening? You just know that the struggle is real. And what Paul addresses here in Romans 7 uh, finds its roots, if you would, look back to chapter 6, Verse 14, when he makes an, an interesting, if not fascinating, statement. Chapter 6, 14, he, he, he writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Well, if that's true, and it's, it's, it's the Word of God, so it is true, your struggle is, my struggle is, our struggle is, why does it seem like sometimes sin has dominion over me? If sin will have no dominion over me, since I'm not under law but under grace, why does sin sometimes sure appear to reign in me and to rule over me and I acquiesce to, to its demands? Well, the key is in the second part of verse 14. Sometimes I don't live as if I'm under grace, but I live under the law. What does that look like? What does it mean in regards to, uh, to my following Jesus? Well, it's about freedom. Freedom that has been bought and purchased for me, but I don't always necessarily walk in. So we're going to call today's message the way of freedom. And here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at our situation we're going to look at an illustration that Paul uses. We're going to look at the problem. And then we're going to look very briefly at the answer. And we'll dig in deeper next time to that answer and what that means. So, let's start, start off with looking at our situation. And as Paul describes it in, in verse 1, back in chapter 7, our situation is with the law. Our situation is with the law. He writes, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, let, let's address what he's referencing when he writes about the law. Um, the law is used throughout this passage. And, and while... The word could mean the Mosaic law, and it's, that it could just be referencing the Old Testament commandments, the scripture. It could be more a meaning an expansion of the law. And clearly in a few verses later, it does, he is, Paul is referring to the commandments. But uh, it, it is also true, while we may not be able to draw a circle around exactly what he's referencing here, it is safe to say that um, any situation, any culture, any religion deals with its own um, code, <laughs> excuse me, its own, its own law. Um, its own rules that say this is permissible, this is not permissible, this is right, this is wrong according to our law. And so Paul, uh, Paul simply says that the law is binding on a person only as long as that person lives. And that's true regardless of the culture. You may live under the law of the United States. You may li live under the law of Russia. You may live under the law of Mexico or under the law of China or Australia. But when you die, you're no longer under the direction and the authority of that law. Now, I need to, I need to say something because as we, as we progress... Paul, it is easy to get the sense that Paul, when he refers to the law and specifically the law um, 
that is found in the Old Testament that is the Word of God and the truth, including the Mosaic Law, it's, it, it, it's easy to say, well, man, the law must be evil. The law must be sinful. I just want to cover this briefly right here and now. Um, that he deals with this using a very common way of stopping everything and focusing our attention on addressing something specific. And in, here in chapter 7, it is in relationship to the law. Let me, verse 7, what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Here's his response. By no means. By no means. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me by no means? Okay, um, so I, it, it's significant that we, we get, get that the law is good. The law is holy. The law is true as it is. And that it is as it is meant to be understood and, and to received and to be um, submitted unto in the sense of this is the word of God. Um, the psalmist in the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in all of the Bible, continuously describes how beautiful and wonderful the law is. In verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? In Psalm, in Psalm 19, David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So God's word is in no way, and specifically the law, is in no way sinful or evil. It is incredibly wonderful and pure and blessed. So what is the what is the Paul's deal with the law then? Well, before we get there, let's look at the illustration that he uses in um, starting in verse two. He, he he writes, "For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the illustration here is, um, is that there's been a change of status. Okay, there's been a change of status. He uses the example of this woman who is married. And um, while she's married to her husband, she is bound to him to live with him and to honor him and to love him just as he is to her. And so, but when he dies, she is released from her obligation to that man, to her 
husband. And he says she is free to marry again because her first husband is gone. His explanation to to the illustration starts in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So you see, there's been a change of status. We were living under the obligation to this husband, i.e. the law. But now the law, because Christ has died, we've died in Christ, the law is no longer our master. We have a new Obligation, and that is to live in Christ. And I think that's really, Paul's using this illustration to expose the fact that our struggle is in that um, we try to live according and unto a commitment that we're no longer bound to. It's as if we who have In Christ, we have died and been raised anew because that old master, that old husband, if you would, has died. Why would we ever live under the obligation to that husband? He's gone. The law no longer holds that that effect on us. Um, When I look to my obedience... When I look to my obedience unto the law as the manner of my salvation, then I am enslaved. Then I am enslaved. Now hear me. God's intent was never for anyone, the most ardent, strident Jew, to look to the law as the means of salvation, as Let me rephrase that. To look to my obedience to the law as the means of my salvation. Never. What he did intend was I, as I look at the law and I seek to live by the law, out of my inability to live by the law and keep the law perfectly, I come to the end of me and my works and look solely to God. Look solely to God. That's grace. That's grace. Um, When I look to my obedience to the law as my salvation, then what's happening to me is I am enslaved. I am am enslaving myself. when my means of salvation, when, my, when the means of my deliverance um, is the law, then I am a slave unto the law. And I am, I, am, I am kicking against a wall that will never let me crawl over it. However, um, when I realize that My situation with the law is one that I can never accomplish on my, through, through my own self means. When I 
when my sense of life living and life trusting and in faith moves from my adherence to the law and my power and ability to keep the law to what Christ has done. When it moves from my obedience to the law to Christ's obedience in perfectly keeping the law and going to the cross and dying for my sin, my inability to keep the law, then all of a sudden my life, my outlook, my motivation, my salvation changes. Changes. There, there is a change of status within me. Okay? Notice in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Living, living to keep the law. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're going to come back to verse 6 uh, just before we move on to addressing the, the problem. I, I just notice this change of status that Paul addresses. We have left the law. We have now moved on to something better than the law. Change of status. Okay, the problem. The problem that we face is the allure of the law. It's the allure of the law. Paul brilliantly describes this in the next several verses, starting in verse 7. What, shall we then, what then shall we say? That the law is sin. He's going to get that out of the way. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, at this point in time, Paul is clearly turning the, his attention to the commandments, specifically the Ten Commandments. And he's saying something about the laws exposing, verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Paul's point here is that um, we are far, we, we, we tend to view ourselves um, under the ray and the, 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 the spotlight of our own eyes and our own standard. And as long as that's happening, we're okay. We're okay. We're doing all right. We're, we're making it okay. Paul's point here in, in verse 7 and 8 is that he was doing okay. He was doing okay until the law. Uh, I, I, if you've been with us very long, about every couple of months, I, I quote this statement by... Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it is, uh, it's one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, and I guess it is, a, um, it is a really tremendous reminder of our own, our own self-capacity for 
total, um, over, for totally overlooking our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness. Spurgeon said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. Now, for some of us, that comes as a slap in the face. Spurgeon intends it, as he states it, to be somewhat of a freedom. That's why we're looking at it in the context of Romans 7. Don't try, to, don't try to present yourself and don't think of yourself as something that is, uh, that is righteous and holy in and of yourself. Realize that when somebody comes up to you and presents some problems with you, instead of getting defensive and listing all the great things you do and all the wonderfully religious deeds that you have accomplished, realize that you're, you're a whole lot worse than this guy could ever, ever imagine. Um, sin is an allure, and, uh, the, or, or the law is an allure. And, and what it does to us is when we are confronted by it, we do one of two things. We either push away from it and become more sinful in our disdain for the truth of the law, or we place ourselves underneath it and proceed to out of our adherence to the law, boost our own self-righteousness as the means for our salvation, as the means for our acceptance under the law. It, 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 is, um, it is just the fact of the matter that when I seek to promote myself through my own self-righteous standards, using the law as the prompt that um, the evil within me manifests itself, maybe in some religious facade, but it's real. I become more proud because of my adherence to the law. Uh, I become more selfish, more arrogant in my keeping the law. Because we, tr we, we look at the law and we say, I've got to do better. I have to earn this. I have to be a good person. And when, and when being a good person is my measure for godliness and for God's acceptance then I'm setting myself up for failure. Interesting statement in verse 5 that Paul makes. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now what does he mean by our sinful passions were aroused by the law? Um... Well, the example that he gives is the 10th commandment in verse 7 and 8. He says, for I would not have known, I'm in the middle of verse 7, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, 
you shall not covet. Um, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, before you come through the screen at me, uh, or try to throw rocks through the screen at me, uh, let's understand what Paul is writing here, what, he, what, what his point is. As long as I see my obedience to the law as my deliverer, my life will bear sinful fruit. Okay? Um, think about it this way. If, if I see my obedience to the law as my Savior, the fruit that is produced through me um, is always going to be about Steve about me. The fruit, if, if, if you're trying to earn your way to God by keeping the law of God, by trying to measure up to his standard, then the fruit that's produced will always stem and find its genesis in you. Who just a few pages earlier Paul said the wrath of God is being poured out upon the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Our self-righteousness is uh, as filthy rags unto the Lord. I, when I was in high school, uh, I played on our high school football team. And um, one of the cheers that our cheerleaders would, would, would chant... I don't know that they. I don't know if schools get away with using this cheer anymore. It's it's in today's standards somewhat politically incorrect, but I don't know. But I know back in the '80s, late '70s, early '80s, this was a common cheer. Y O U U G L Y. You ain't got no alibi. You ugly, absolutely ugly. Well, let me connect. <laughs> let me connect. Looking to the law and my obedience to the law for salvation will produce ugly things. Legalism. Uh, I become unapproachable because I know everything. I know it all. I'm keeping the law. Who are you to come to me and find fault in me? Can you measure up to what? I've, what I've accomplished and what I've done, it, is, uh, it becomes almost impossible for somebody to have an open conversation with me. It becomes, I've built a wall around myself so that all I see is my good deeds. So Paul says, let me tell you what happened to me. I was sailing along when all of a sudden, I encountered the Tenth Commandment. Now, thou shalt not covet, covet stands as the last of the Ten Commandments for a reason. Because when you look at the first nine, they all deal with outward, with outward sins. They do anyway as taken in the Old Testament canon as Moses received them until Jesus gave heart to these commandments, but 
Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He kept the commandments. And he could honestly say, I have kept all the commandments. At least during his most pivotal adult years before Christ, he could say, yes, I've kept all the commandments. But all of a sudden, he is confronted with the reality of the Tenth Commandment. Because the Tenth Commandment is not an outward commandment to be, to be held to. It is it's, it's something that is of the heart. Thou shalt not covet. From commandments 1 through 9, Paul could say, listen, man, I, I don't worship idols. Uh, I honor my father and mother. I don't, I've not committed adultery. I've not killed anybody. But he's confronted with, you shall not covet. And he's undone. It's, he's undone. Because Paul sees in covetousness the fact that he has violated that. And so in, in understanding the law, thou shalt not covet, he realizes that the sin that is within him is manifested. It's not that the law causes you to sin. What Paul's point throughout these chapters is the law exposes my sin. It exposes it. And before I realized and understood what the law was saying, I could go merrily on my way. I'm not an idol worshiper. I love my parents. I don't kill people. I'm not an adulterer. But do I covet? Do I covet? Do I want anything other than the Lord himself? You see its connection to the first commandment. We've talked about the first commandment the last couple of times together. At the heart of the first commandment is the tenth commandment. I want something that God has not provided for me. I covet this. Well, our time's about up. Very briefly, I just want to address the answer to, uh, to this problem. This allure for sin. The allure of the law that leads to sin. And it's found in uh, a verse we read earlier. It's verse 6. It's going to be, Paul is going to expound upon it. Uh, later on, toward the end of chapter 7. And we're going we're gonna to dig in much deeper next time. But he's going to give us a taste of, of this. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. How are we released from the law? How have we died to that which held us captive? The answer is Christ in me. Christ in you is how that happens. Jesus is the answer. Because in Christ I find 
the, the, the satisfier of my soul, the, the, the fulfillment of all that I have longed for and yearned for. I thought I needed this. I thought I wanted that. But in Christ, as we looked at last week, Christ is my all in all. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Now, we started off by, by saying, man, what, what is it that you deal with? Maybe you're in Christ. Maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe just in an honest assessment of where you are, there, you, you recognize there's this huge hole in your, in your heart. There's an emptiness. And I want to tell you, you can try to fill that emptiness with all kind of stuff, all kind of things, all kind of desires, all kind of uh, sins, all kind of wants and greeds. But it's, it's going to stay empty. It's going to stay empty. Because there is something that will fill that void, that emptiness in you. But there's only one thing that will, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you've trusted Christ, but you are found yourself in this almost oppressive battle of trying to measure up. And what you need to understand is you will never measure up. It's not that the law needs to be cut out of our Bibles. The law is beautiful. The law really is holy and good and pure. But you need to understand what the law is there for. It's there to teach us truth. To teach us truth, first of all, about God. His holiness, His perfection, His love and tender mercies for us, for you. And the law is there to teach us about ourselves. That as wonderful and holy and perfect as God is, we are not. We need a Savior. And that Savior has been provided by our God. Now, if you know that Savior, why would you ever set aside the freedom of walking in grace of Jesus and go back to and live by the shackles of the law and keeping the law? Trust the Lord. When you come to Christ, He places His Spirit in you so that the holiness comes. The sanctification will come if you are in Christ. But it comes in freedom. Not because you must, but because you can. Not because you have to earn it, but out of love for your Savior. There's a reason why David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's because he is good. Live it. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, may we have a proper understanding of what you want to do in and through each one of us. And may we turn to, look to, trust in Christ alone to fill the empty whole that lives in each one of us apart from you. May we trust Christ to fill that emptiness. 
And God, once we do, may we realize that you have cut the chains of self-effort and self-righteousness. And you have delivered us to freedom. May we walk in that freedom. In Christ's name and to the glory of you, Father, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Come back next time. If things are going to begin to get, if you, if that, if you struggled a little bit with this, Paul is going to continue, I, I believe, to clarify exactly what he's talking about. It's been great to be with you. Hang with us as we close through worship and song. I look forward to being with you the very next time. May the Lord bless you.